Thank you. Good evening. We're going to celebrate Richard Strauss tonight. I couldn't wait until Strauss's 150th birthday, which is next year, so you're getting an early, this is his 149th birthday, uh, an early start on Richard Strauss. <laughs> we could talk about something really good and you want to hear about my foot. Um, I, I went to the Fort Worth Opera Ball on Saturday night. It was very successful. I stepped off the plane in Albuquerque Sunday morning. It wasn't so successful. And uh, yesterday was crutches, but today uh, it's just the boot and that's great. The metatarsal is broken, yes. It will heal, but thank you. Okay, so. Strauss, as a young child, was already clearly showing the signs that, that he was going to be one of the world's great composers. His father, Franz Strauss, was a great horn player, and I say great, one of the greatest in all of Europe. When Wagner and Wagner and Strauss's father were enemies, wanted the best horn player for his new operas, he would invariably call on Franz Strauss because he said, even though he's insufferable when he starts to play, you forget all that. So, Richard grew up hearing the French horn played at the highest possible level. And he grew up in Munich, in Bavaria, a lovely, well-to-do southern German family. Now, you know, in every part of the world, there's always this south-north thing, and Germany is no exception. The serious, stiff people live up north, according to the people who live down south. And, and, and the, the sort of lazy, good-for-nothing people live down south, according to the people up north. So, of course, it's because the southerners don't have nine months of winter, they only have six months of winter. So there's a whole uh, climactic difference that's built into these people. So Strauss grew up in this laid-back family, right? His father's practicing horn eight hours a day and always working at some uh, top symphony orchestra job. And his mother was one of the heiresses of the Shore Brewery fortune. So they were fine. And Strauss went to school, never went to conservatory, but by the time he had finished high school, what the Germans call gymnasium, he had already composed 200 pieces. <laughs> 60 songs, a few symphonies, lots of chamber works, uh, pretty good for a lazy kid from the South, you know. <laughs> he, he was a nonstop composer, and he lived to be 85, and we can fairly say that he composed nonstop for 78 years, because really, from the moment he began, he composed the way he breathed. It doesn't mean that every composition is at exactly the same level, but certainly, uh, through his long composing career, there are many great masterworks by Richard Strauss. Strauss himself was, of course, influenced by his father and the music that he heard around him. His favorite composers were Mozart and Schubert and Beethoven. Wagner was a dirty word in the Strauss household. So Richard had to wait until he was allowed to go on his own to see Tannhäuser when he was 17 years old. And oh my gosh, there was no turning back and no peace in that household because he became a converted Wagnerian. <laughs> By the way, the uh, star, the female lead in this 
Tannhäuser he saw was a woman named Pauline de Anna. We'll hear about her later. So Strauss tries to convince his father, and he was clearly a very considerate young man. Oh, Papa, I understand your feelings, but do you not think that this harmonic progress, well, it didn't matter how genteely Strauss couched all these things. Franz would hear nothing of it. So many of Strauss's early compositions were in fact written for his father. And um, he said, music making with such a famous father was always a rather anxious affair. So he would write his father a horn sonata and they would play it and it had to be within the conservative classical framework that his father appreciated. So uh, occasionally Strauss would write something a little excessive and his father would say, I think that you are falling under the spell of <laughs> decadent influences. So here is uh, Richard Strauss trying to be one musician when he is at home and meanwhile becoming quite a different musician outside of the house. So for his high school graduation, he wrote uh, his second gigantic symphony and his father was very proud of it because it was written along those lines. But there were certain moments when it uh, expanded beyond those and Strauss was already thinking not only about his own musical personality but what does a composer need to do to make a mark on the world? Germany, full of great composers, he thought, okay, Wagner has triumphed in the opera area in a way that I can't compete with right now. So he pretty much leaves opera aside for a while, and he thinks uh, Beethoven, the great Beethoven, yes, he wrote those nine magnificent symphonies, but in order to say something in a new way, I'm going to write symphonies with three times as many instruments. And so he develops a remarkably rich, colorful sonic language using an orchestra with a piccolo and three flutes, three oboes and an English horn, uh, an E-flat clarinet, two regular clarinets and a bass clarinet, three bassoons and a contrabassoon, you know, four French horns plus four more Wagner tubas, which are like French horns, and maybe three trombones and a bass trumpet and uh, you know so suddenly we have this gigantic orchestra to say nothing of 16 first violin 16 second violin so there's this whole sound world that Strauss knows how to open and um, it was the hallmark of his early works that the orchestra was larger than any orchestra that had ever been used in addition to that he made sure that every orchestra player was fully engaged in the music at hand by writing the most difficult parts that could be written so that nobody is sitting there playing bop, 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 No, they're playing da 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 and, and it keeps them all on their toes. So uh, Strauss's premieres are both um, anticipated eagerly by the public and dreaded by the orchestras. <laughs> Even his father, who was the master of the French horn, looked at a part Strauss wrote, and Strauss said, Papa, is this, is this playable? And his father sits down and plays it and says, yeah, it's playable. And then the next morning at rehearsal, his father is the principal horn and stands up in front of an orchestra of 100 people and says, this is unplayable. And Strauss says, you told me it was playable. He says, yeah, but not in front of people. <laughs> so. Strauss had this very difficult relationship with his father, but he was 
extremely interested in what his father thought, and of course his father was extremely interested in everything he composed. Now Strauss's first great orchestral triumph came in 1888 when he was 24. This is um, the tone poem Don Juan. Um, of course he knew Mozart's opera. Now in Mozart's opera, Don Juan uh, starts the piece by murdering the father of a woman that he's just raped. In the poem that Strauss uses, it's Don Juan who is killed. So, uh, of course, in the opera he's killed too, but by supernatural powers. Um, in, in the poem that Strauss sets, um, Don Juan is a, a character from a later century, essentially, because he has thousands of women but he has a philosophical side, right? I mean, the Spanish Don Juan never had a philosophical side. The German Don Juan thinks about if there is an ideal woman who would combine every woman so that in making love to that one woman, he could essentially be making love to all women, a very um, late romantic German thought. <laughs> so Strauss's poem is in a sense uh, more, more, uh, I'm going to say more muted. It's not more muted in the parts where Don Juan is heroic. The theme of uh, Don Juan himself is like this. So th this depicts his um, dashing, brazen personality. And then every time a woman comes in, we have these beautiful melodies. But when Don Juan comes, and you hear the heroic uh, Don Juan uh, and the woman answering him. Strauss is able to depict character just using the orchestra. And all of these great tone poems are not symphonies because they don't have the formal structure of a symphony, but they are all programmatic. And when I say programmatic, they follow a story, they follow a program. Uh, there is another great one about Don Quixote. It's a set of variations. Strauss calls them variations on a nightly theme. And uh, again, he doesn't hesitate to, if, if there are bleating sheep uh, in the story, then you hear the woodwinds going, bleh, bleh. He holds nothing back. Quite the opposite of Beethoven, who, except for the Pastoral Symphony, tried to avoid program music. Mozart, in his symphonies, avoided program music. So Strauss is cutting a new path for himself, telling stories very literally through sound. There's a Heldenleben, he, he originally called it Held und Welt, Hero and World, about himself, <laughs> because already in his 20s he had achieved incredible fame, and he wanted to write not about how great he was, because Strauss never seems to have thought one way or the other about whether he was good or bad or indifferent, but he wanted to write a tone poem that depicted what it was like 
to have a creative idea, to have many people oppose it, and ultimately to triumph over all of it. So there's a whole half-hour tone poem about the artist's journey. Then there's a tone poem about uh, Zarathustra, the Nietzsche character. And um, Strauss was very influenced by Schopenhauer, but then later by Nietzsche. And so Also sprach Zarathustra turns into a tone poem in eight movements, and all of the different um, ideas in Nietzsche find musical expression in this piece. Uh, what else did he write around this time? Tod und Verklärung, uh, Death and Transfiguration, which starts with death and then moves through what Strauss assumes the human soul will do after death. Um, obviously, as I said in relation to the other, uh, philosophy in Germany at this point is of paramount importance. People are talking about it all the time, and Strauss is very much caught up in this zeitgeist. So he knows what people are thinking about, and he composes in ways that draw people in. What are people thinking about right now? So he thinks, I am now ready to write an opera. And he writes an opera called Guntram in 1894, when he's 30 years old. A beautiful opera with beautiful melodies that was an abject failure and was really never revived again. Strauss was very upset. He erected a little gravestone in his backyard, <laughs> put Guntram on it. So part of the problem was Guntram did not have a good libretto. Strauss wrote the libretto himself. He thought that Wagner had done that. Strauss realized that in that respect, he was not Wagner. So uh, his next operatic attempt was called Feuersnot, uh, then in need of fire. Okay, sort of a comic opera. When you hear the plot, you will probably grasp right away why it was not a big success either. <laughs> um, a woman says to her lover, come up to my bedroom window, I'll hoist you up in a basket, and we will then be married. He's hoisted up halfway and left there as a practical joke. <laughs> the next morning he's exposed to the villagers' scorn, but he's in league with a magician who says to humiliate your would-be fiancé, the only way that she can save herself and the village from plague which will kill them all is if she stands naked in the public square and a fire is lit which will burst out of her anus. Now, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And only then can the village be saved. Now, can you imagine that this opera did not have a long success? Luckily for Strauss, he saw Hedwig Lachmann's German version of uh, Oscar Wilde's play, Zalame. And this play captivated him. He thought, I really can turn Zalome into a great opera. And uh, as you know, he did. One of the greatest operas ever written. So uh, by this time, 1905, he's 40. And in Zalame, he really captured the spirit of the times. Zalame is a story about obsession. And all of Vienna, all of Europe, was aware of Freud, and suddenly uh, the workings of human psychology were fascinating to everyone. So Zalame opens with a minor character, Narabot, 
observing Zalame, who's not on stage, and singing how beautiful she looks. Uh, by now, you can tell that Strauss's harmonic language, that in Don Juan was still very tonal, is starting to change into something quite different. sing it, but uh, we've gone through six keys in so many bars. Uh, it is never true that Strauss is an atonal composer, but he has discovered the beauty of dissonance. He said at one point, it is um, never more interesting to become atonal because in an atonal musical world, there isn't differentiation. Of course, other composers were able to compose very successfully in that way, but for Strauss, keeping one foot in tonality and stretching as far as possible into atonality or into dissonance was more interesting than pure atonality. Narabot sees Zalame. Narabot is so obsessed with her that he will do anything. Zalame is so obsessed with John the Baptist who is trapped in a cistern in Herod's palace. Herod is obsessed only with Zalame. In order to get John the Baptist out of the cistern so that she can look at him, she says to Narabot, order the guards to remove the cover. He says, the Tetrarch has said that is punishable by death. So she says, I'll look at you. I'll even smile at you pretty soon. He takes the cover off <laughs> and the guards kill him just the way he knew they would but that's the extent of his obsession with Zalame. That happens in the first three minutes of the opera. <laughs> and it sets up what we know will happen eventually, which is, Herod says to Zalame, if you dance for me, I will give you anything you want, anything at all. And Zalame at first refuses, but finally says she will, and I'm sure you know this, this dance or something. It starts out as um, but builds and builds and builds. It's called the Dance of the Seven Veils. In most productions, Zalame, by the end of the dance, has shed all seven of her veils, <laughs> and Herod is, of course, ready to give her anything at all.
so forth. So uh, Zalome finishes her dance and says, what I really want is the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. And Herod tries to dissuade her, but of course he has to do it. So finally, she can look John the Baptist in the eye and say, you were so scornful and you wouldn't even give me the tiniest notice, but now I'm going to kiss you. And uh, she kisses his dead, severed head. And the orchestra uh, depicts this whole awful proceeding. She, she says, Ich habe deine In Strauss's earlier life, that bass note would have been a half note lower and it would have sounded like this. Either or, but no, it's. So this is 1905 and it's when dissonance reaches the furthest extreme it can reach before it breaks. Um, and Strauss saves that moment for the end of the opera. It's not that the entire opera is written that way, but people went crazy for this. Zalame was a fantastic success from its first performance through its 100th, 200th, 300th. Uh, nobody could get enough of, of Zalame. And uh, I think that Strauss suddenly had a sort of epiphany, and he realized that he couldn't keep going this way. So Strauss, while other composers were imitating him and going further into atonality, retreated into a world which always included dissonance but was fundamentally very tonal. And um, later operas, like Der Rosenkavalier, are full of melodies which in many ways uh, look backwards rather than forwards. Of course, gorgeous music, and much more gorgeous on a 100-piece orchestra than an 88-key piano. But um, it's, it's nevertheless a music which the rest of the music world leaves him behind, essentially. And Strauss was never bothered by this. Uh, he outlived many of the composers who were writing atonally, and um, he, he, felt, uh, he felt bad for them, actually. He heard Schoenberg's uh, latest compositions, and he said, my God, he's, all that can help him now is a psychiatrist. He should be, <laughs> he should be shoveling snow, actually, is what, what Richard Strauss said. So, uh, you know, he, he championed virtually every other composer, but that was one route he wasn't able to go down himself. He just didn't. Now, of all the kinds of pieces Strauss wrote, you know, the dozen operas and the, the eight tone poems, his favorite form all through his life was the song. And I told you, even when he was 18 years old, he'd already written 60 songs. We don't have those 60 songs. But um, we do know hundreds of songs that were published after that time. And so, um, Jenna, I'm going to ask you to demonstrate some of these for us, because uh, we know what Strauss's first published song was. And it was a song called Zu Eignung. 
Um, you know, the poem says, you know, dear soul, that far away from you, I, I am not able to be whole any longer. Uh, I'm thankful to you for completing me. Once, because I needed to test the bounds of freedom, uh, I held high the amethyst becker, uh, the amethyst cup, the amethyst goblet, a, a metaphor for uh, having some affair with somebody else. And, and you blessed this drink, and I thank you for that, uh, until all of the demons within me were exorcised, and uh, once again we fell on one another's breasts. Thank you. So this is Strauss's first song, now uh, published song. Uh, the woman he was writing it for was Dora Vihan, a singer that he was very involved with at the time. And actually, he, he wrote her eight songs, but this is the first one. So we're going to do Zu Eignung. Grab some glasses, if you would, out of there. Um, Strauss and Dora Vihan didn't last very long because the leading lady in Guntram, Strauss's first opera, ill-fated first opera, was Pauline de Anha that he had seen in Tannhäuser some years before. And he was completely smitten with Pauline and uh, stayed with her for the rest of his life, which was till he was 85 years old, so that was some... 65 years, uh, he said to Pauline, I want to marry you, I want to share my life with you, and her response was, we're both having careers right now, could this wait a while, is there a rush? <laughs> and he had to approach her uh, many times before she decided that, that she was willing to do this. He stressed over and over that she would be able to continue singing, that in no way would he want to compromise the life of an artist like her, 
but uh, she, she kept her distance uh, for quite a while. When she finally consented to marry him, uh, he wrote several songs in a couple of days and uh, gave them to her as a wedding present. Uh, one of these songs is very famous. We're going to sing it for you now, and it's called Morgan. Uh, it's a, a joyful text. The, the sun will shine again tomorrow, and uh, we will go down to the beach and look silently into each other's eyes and the joy that no words can express will come over us completely. A very appropriate thing for him to write to his fiancée. So this is Morgan. This is Morgan with the right notes, yes. <laughs> Thank you. 
Strauss was still not sure that Pauline was going to stick with him because she had been so difficult to obtain. So the day before the wedding, he thought he better write one more song for good measure. <laughs> Strauss could turn out songs quite quickly. You picked that up already. And so this one is much more passionate. If you knew what it was like to suffer together and to work through problems as a team, you would come to me. If you know what it was like to uh, live together and to kiss together and to share everything together, uh, then you would live with me right away and forever. So this is Cecily by Rehearsed. <laughs> Some people asked questions that made me think of things that I should have talked about. The, the first was, did Strauss's father ever hear um, Zalame? Yes, he did. And um, two great musicians had two very different reactions to it. Gustav Mahler heard Zalame and said, this is monumental. It's like a volcano is erupting underneath this work. And Strauss's father said, oh, it makes you feel like your pants are full of insects. <laughs> <laughs> So that, that was never resolved in Strauss's <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> the other thing somebody says was, did Strauss and Mahler have a rivalry? Well, they had a tremendous respect for each other, but they had a completely different approach to life and to music. Um, Mahler felt that everything was a question of God and man. And uh, I don't want to use the word neurotic, but I mean, Mahler was always uh, anxious, let us say, about his role in the universe. 
And Strauss just seemed to never worry about that. He was an a-religious person. Um, his only references to God in his life always have to do with nature. Uh, for Strauss, nature was God. He didn't go to church, he didn't subscribe to any doctrine, um, and while he listened to everybody around him talk endlessly about uh, theology, it didn't interest him in the slightest. So the two of them had a healthy respect and they really did admire what the other one did. Now, Strauss was the uh, opera director of the court theater in Berlin. And during the time that Mahler was the head of the Vienna Staatsoper, uh, Strauss was in Berlin, but he traveled all over the place. He was constantly finishing a rehearsal at 10 at night and taking the night train to Cologne and conducting and taking the night train to somewhere else. And it, it, it had some uh, bad effects on his health, but he, he recovered. And uh, Pauline was often left at home. By now they had a son, Franz, named after Richard's father. And, um, uh, Richard missed Pauline terribly. They were truly deeply in love. Every day, and this is true, for 55 years of marriage, every day when he wasn't at home, he wrote her long letters. And uh, luckily, many of these letters survive. So uh, he wrote a setting of a song called Ach lieb, ich muss nun scheiden. Uh, ah, love, it's time for me to go away. Because this was such a frequent occurrence in the Strauss household. So, um, sweetheart, would you sing this song for us? Ach lieb, ich muss nun scheiden. I'm going to travel over mountains and through valleys. The, the trees, the elders and the oaks uh, are going to cry because they see us together all the time. They see us um, going through the mountains in the trees, hand in hand. And if the trees are crying, think how we must feel. So uh, obviously Strauss here, deep in nature, deep in love, and uh, this is the song that, that he wrote. <laughs> no, I almost know these songs by heart, but why risk it? Thank you. 
Strauss did eventually become the director of the Vienna State Opera, but it was after Mahler's death. And it was after World War I. Strauss was not only a-religious, he was a-political. And in World War I, he was able to remain completely aloof from the political situation. When he uh, finished Zalame, he found the dream librettist that he had needed all along. Hugo von Hofmannsthal. Hofmannsthal was 10 years younger than Strauss and a playwright. Several of the operas that are collaborations between Hofmannsthal and Strauss were in fact written as plays by Hofmannsthal. Electra, the story of uh, Agamemnon being murdered by his wife Clytemnestra and they have four children, Iphigenia and Orestes and uh, Chrysotomus and Electra. Um, and Electra waits for the time when Orestes will come home uh, to, to murder um, Orestes and avenge her. This was a play that, that um, Hofmannsthal freely adapted. And so the opera is a study in madness. Why? Strauss's mother, Johanna, was going completely mad, and Strauss found a way to express his extraordinary sorrow about this in an opera. The, the thing about Richard Strauss that everybody who knew him said over and over was he seemed to be a very easygoing man. And I think he probably did seem that way because everything that he felt emotionally went straight into composition. So if what was bothering him was his mother's madness, he wrote Electra. And uh, if, if what was uh, delighting him was his son taking a bath, he would write a, a tone poem, a 40-minute tone poem called Sinfonia Domestica, <laughs> not, not making this up, um, that has lovemaking with his wife and quarreling with his wife and giving their son a bath. And it's all depicted in the ultimate program music for 130 pieces, thank you very much. So huge orchestra. The only time Strauss ever outdid that was a piece called the Alpine Symphony dedicated to the mountains outside of his house, which is actually scored for 153 players. <laughs> it's quite magnificent, but obviously not performed all that frequently because of the difficulties of even finding a stage that large, much less 153 expert players to fill it. So Strauss continued to write autobiographically all of his life. And he never felt that there was anything um, indiscreet about this. He said, one should write about what one knows. Now, we've heard prose writers say this, but uh, as a composer, it's a little more unusual, you know. Uh, does, does Beethoven's music have an autobiographical feel? Well, sometimes, but, you know, with Strauss, it's clearly more than any other composer autobiographical music. There was an incident in 1902 when Pauline thought that Strauss was having an affair because a note came to the house uh, for Herr Strauss to meet uh, a woman named Mitzi at uh, such and such a location at three o'clock on such and such a day. And um, Pauline Strauss, who, who was certainly uh, a very powerful person, got on the next train, 
um, took all of Strauss's money out of his bank account, wrote him a letter, said, uh, this is the end, I divorce you, uh, you know. <laughs> he was in England giving a concert tour, and he heard about this, and he wrote back and he said, I'm not quite sure what you're talking about because I've never heard of this person. It turned out that there was a conductor named Josef Stransky. And uh, so somebody had written a little note that said, Stransky, um, three o'clock at the Grecian Battle or whatever, at, uh, at something. And uh, it was enough that the N and the U looked alike, that somebody thought it was Strauss and it was delivered to him. Anyway, Strauss, far from being embarrassed by this, wrote an entire opera telling this story. <laughs> it's called Intermezzo. And he didn't want to trouble any other librettists, so he wrote the libretto himself. And in it, he is Robert Storch, and he is a, a scat-playing composer. Uh, scat is a card game that Strauss loved all of his life, and he played it with Bruno Volter and Otto Klemperer and Clemens Krauss, and every famous musician in the early part of the, of the 20th century in Germany played scat with Richard Strauss. So that's in the opera, and, and uh, some of you may have seen it at Santa Fe Opera a few years ago, uh, a very domestic comedy with these fantastic tone poem intermezzos that reveal everything about his life. And um, he, he never changed in that regard. He was completely open about uh, the person that he was. And he felt that um, publishers should simply take on spec anything that he was writing. After Mahler's death, he was uh, indisputably the greatest composer in Germany, and everybody regarded him as such. However, uh, he was not able to um, defeat the publishers, because he was essentially the first person to come up with the idea of an ASCAP-like organization. And year after year, he kept fighting for this, not for himself particularly, but for the 200 and some professional composers that were working in Germany at the time. And the publishing houses uh, hated him for this. They, they would never capitulate. So um, finally, uh, when he tried to withdraw his works from a certain publishing house, they refused just to spite him because they were so angry about his insistence on this composer's rights and royalties. Uh, obviously now this is a fact of life that we all take for granted, but in the early 20th century it was not. So he hit on a scheme so that he could become free of this publisher. He wrote a series of 12 satirical songs about the publishing house um, <laughs> and insisted that they publish them, which, not surprisingly, they refused to do. So he got a lawyer and he said they've broken our contract and he was free of them. I thought that was very clever. That was sort of Odysseus-like that he could do that. So I bring up Odysseus because Strauss's favorite place in the world besides Germany, which he adored, was Greece. He went to Greece all the time and he felt that he was the direct lineage between ancient Greece and contemporary Germany. He wrote, he wrote, listen to this, Electra, the Egyptian Helen, Die Liebe der Danae, and Daphne. Four of his operas are uh, classical Greek stories retold as contemporary German operas. And he felt that there was a real kinship between the best of what was German and the best of ancient Greece. So needless to say, it was a horrible shock for Strauss when the Third Reich came to power in 1933. Um, he thought that he was so famous 
and uh, such a national treasure that he would be able to put them in their place. And uh, there's a famous letter where somebody says, you'd better go meet Herr Hitler. And he says, oh, I dealt with the Kaiser. This guy won't be any different. Well, of course, he was very different. And um, Hitler had heard uh, the premiere of Zalame when he was a teenager. Um, he'd heard it in Graz. But uh, Strauss's life collapsed. The last 15 years of his life were mostly miserable. Um, his son had married a Jewish woman. His librettist now that Hofmannsthal was no longer around uh, was Jewish man. Um, his publisher was Jewish. M much of artistic Germany was Jewish. And Strauss said, what's going to happen here? Is the, all, all of artistic life in Germany going to stop? So he wrote Hitler a letter. I mean, this just shows how naive and apolitical, uh, clueless, I think, is another word. He was. He wrote Hitler a letter, and he said, um, surely it is of interest to you to preserve German art and culture, and that is my only mission in life. So um, I'll tell you when it's convenient for us to meet, and I'll, I'll uh, let you know how we can do this. <laughs> the meeting did not happen. And you know, one by one, he watched his friends uh, either be sent to concentration camps or be exiled or, or willingly go into exile. And um, it was a, a miserable, miserable life for millions of Germans, particularly Jews. But, you know, although it's hard for us to imagine, these people were, were living together. They were intermarried. They were friends. They were families. They were, they were one people. And suddenly, uh, millions of people being murdered and taken away. And so it, it didn't just affect the Jews, it affected everybody. And um, in hindsight, you know, many people have said, why didn't Richard Strauss uh, stand up to the Fuhrer and defy him? And obviously, nobody could do that. Uh, they could leave, um, which Strauss wasn't in a position to do because his family was there. But um, somebody finally said to him during the Second World War, look, the situation isn't going to get better whether you go away or commit suicide or stop writing, but if you write more pieces, that's one good thing that will remain after the war. So uh, Strauss decided he would continue to compose into his 70s and into his 80s. So we have these operas of his later life, um, Capriccio and uh, others that, that, that are really um, beautiful pieces that have no longer anything to do with the zeitgeist. You know, when I said Strauss was a young man and he was so tuned in, now he just wanted to tune out. And, uh, you know, you can forgive somebody in their 80s for feeling like uh, they can't really change the course of world events. So Strauss uh, wrote these operas more and more about things that were personally important to him. And what those things were were family and opera. So he wrote this opera Capriccio about the inevitable conflict between words and music. Hardly a subject that would be interesting to a world at war, but uh, this piece is about a poet and a composer who are fighting for the love of a countess. And one of them insists, first words, and the music always is subservient. And the other one is insisting that music is the the guide and that the words are subservient. So needless to say, the question can't be resolved and isn't resolved in the opera. But it's interesting that as he was turning 80, Strauss was writing these pieces like um, uh, Capriccio and, 
Another one is Die Schweigsame Frau, uh, The Silent Woman, which is just a, a comedy, of, a four-hour comedy written in this most horrific of times. I think it was the only way that Strauss could keep himself sane. He did write uh, an opera which is um, a plea for peace. It's called Friedenstag. And Friedenstag um, is a manifesto for ending all the wars that have ever happened. Um, a beautiful piece, but it, it didn't have any uh, political effect, needless to say. So Strauss, I, I told you that he loved songs above all else, continued writing songs, dozens of songs, and one day uh, he and Pauline were to go out, and uh, he was ready and she wasn't. Pauline loved hats. She, she thought that hats were the main fashion statement that a woman could make. There's even a story, I don't know if it's true, that a woman walked into the Strauss home and Pauline looked at her hat and said, that's almost right, and ran and got a pair of scissors and snipped most of the brim <laughs> off so that the hat was right. And uh, uh, Pauline was doing things like this all the time. And Strauss thought it was the greatest thing in the world. But while he had 15 minutes to wait for her, he sat down and wrote this song about the walk they were about to take in the twilight. And again, nature is God. They're, they're imagining that time when uh, it's just turning gray and uh, the, the last light of the sun is just coming across the fields and he's with the most beautiful woman and uh, he, he says everything becomes completely serenely peaceful. So we're going to take this song that took Strauss 15 minutes to write. <laughs> Traum durch die Dämmerung, a dream through twilight.
bad for 15 minutes, right? <laughs> Strauss literally composed every waking moment of the day. If he wasn't writing something down, he was thinking of something that he was going to write down. And this really persisted right up to the end of his life. Uh, at the end of his life, he, he never, never expected to outlive the Second World War, but he did. And uh, in 1948, when he was 84 years old, he wrote four songs. Uh, they're now often performed as a collection called the Four Last Songs, but in fact they weren't conceived as a group. Uh, they were individual songs that he wrote. And they reflect on life from his point of view, having lived through so much. Well, we're going to sing you the very, very last song that Strauss ever wrote, and it's called September. He says, um, the garden is sad, um, the blossoms are fading, and uh, summer is shuddering. The, the end has come for this season. Um, even though there were these loves and these connections, that time has passed. And so summer uh, slowly closes its tired eyes. Strauss, thinking about himself and, and thinking about uh, letting go, letting go peacefully and beautifully. So this is Zeptemba by Strauss.
Strauss, as I said, never had the full acceptance of his father, but many of his most beautiful melodies long after his father's death are for the French horn. And that final solo in that song, of course, is a glorious French horn. So Strauss made his piece, even though his father thought that Salome sounded like having insects in his pants. <laughs> and uh, there, were, there were a number of things Strauss did at the end of his life to sort of bring things musically full circle. Uh, he, as I mentioned, wrote those 12 satirical pieces so that he could get released from his publisher. But later he said, you know, some of that was really good music. So, <laughs> of course, the world would never see it in that form. So he, he took the best thematic material from those songs and put them into the opera Capriccio. And at the end of the four last songs, he takes the theme from death and transfiguration about what a person experiences as they're nearing death and accepting death. And that music goes into the end of the, the last of the four last songs. And Strauss's comment to his son 60 years after he'd written Death and Transfiguration was, and you know, I pretty much got it right. <laughs> he said that. And finally, his opera, Guntram, the one that he buried in the backyard with a little gravestone, he used the most beautiful music from that in one of his uh, very last pieces and said all along, it wasn't such a bad piece after all. So he, he took all, he never forgot a piece of music, particularly one of his own pieces of music, and uh, wove them together. I read that when he would give concert tours with his wife Pauline, uh, that he would improvise in between the songs, usually music from his own operas uh, that somehow thematically related to the subject of the song. So most of his inner dialogue was a musical one, uh, and, and he would you know, speak with that music just as if it was spoken language. I wanted to leave a few minutes in case uh, you have questions about Richard Strauss. Obviously, this uh, musical giant and this life, I could only just give you a little taste, but does anybody have any burning questions they would like to ask? Yes, sir. Uh, Strauss allegedly described his own, his self, as being the best of the second rate composers. <laughs> Somebody said, so, so Strauss um, was asked to fill out a form, and uh, this was during the Third Reich, and of course, everybody had plenty of paperwork to fill out. And it said, um, list two composers who could be references for you. And he wrote down Mozart and Richard Wagner. <laughs> and when, the, when he was asked why he had done this, he said, well, they're first-rate composers. And I may not be a first-rate composer, but I'm definitely a first-rate, second-rate composer. <laughs> and he may have been more than that, I think. There's a question back there. Die Frau ohne Schatten is <laughs> the most unwieldy and heavily symbolic piece that Strauss ever wrote. He wrote it with his collaborator Hofmannsthal, and it is a sort of 20th century magic flute. The uh, main characters are an empress and an emperor who are not of this world. They're uh, only half human. And then there is a dyer and his wife. Barak the dyer and his wife can't have a child. And um, they, they want a child and the empress uh, comes down to earth because she wants to steal somebody's shadow. Um, her husband, the emperor, sorry I told you it was an abstruse plot. 
her husband, the emperor, has been turned to stone because she doesn't have, because his wife doesn't have a shadow. And in this opera, having a shadow is a metaphor for being human and being able to have children. So the empress comes down, wants to steal this shadow, and um, in the end, sees the sorrow and the tragedy that will bring on this family and decides that she'll sacrifice herself and her husband and in the end says, I won't take the shadow. And in that moment, she's redeemed and she becomes human and the emperor turns back from stone into not flesh because he's divine, but uh, he, he has life again. Uh, this opera uh, meant a lot to both Strauss and Hofmannsthal, but it was some, something they considered so special that they didn't want it performed during the First World War. So they hung on to it, and they did the premiere of it at the Vienna State Opera in 1919. Well, everybody was still bereft, you know, so many millions had died and people had lost their families, and this opera was not the right thing at the right time. Um, if you ever hear Die Frau ohne Schatten, uh, it can be absolutely some of the most magnificent music you've ever heard. Um, it, can, it can also seem so unwieldy. Yes? A Saturday radio broadcast or an HD? Okay, <laughs> a radio. So listen to it. I mean, it's, it's superb. Yes, sir. Is there any comments on the contemporary pop music, the avant-garde, Bad Hope Rat, sort of? You know, uh, 20th, uh, in, in the 20s, Strauss went up to Hindemith, and he said, you are so talented. Why do you write this trash? <laughs> and uh, that sort of summed up his attitude. He he. He just never went there. He, but he recognized the genius of some of the composers who were doing that. It just didn't speak to him. I, oh, a quick thing about, you all know that John Crosby was a lifelong devotee of the music of Richard Strauss. And uh, although he never did Guntram, he did everything else except Die Frau ohne Schatten because he just said it's too massive for our forces here in Santa Fe. But uh, you know some of those operas he did over and over. My gosh, uh, uh, my very first job at Santa Fe Opera in '91 was being the pianist and John's assistant conductor on uh, Die Schweigsame Frau, an opera which I had never heard and was introduced to when I went to his apartment in New York for an audition. And he plopped this 400-page score in front of me <laughs> and said, "Okay, just start reading." And he was doing that conducting that he would do, and I was you know trying to look at this score and watch him and. I thought, this is never going to happen. And we went through most of Act One, and he finally said, OK, shut the book. And I shut the book, and he said, do you have pets? And <laughs> that was John's way of saying he was going to look out for us so that we could come to Santa Fe and have a place for our pets while we did Die Schweigsame Frau. I mean, <laughs> he's a truly great man and a great Straussian. So sorry, there was somebody. Yes. He, at first, was invited to be um, in charge of music. This was between 1933 and 1935. And uh, he thought he was going to set everything straight in Germany. And of course, the position was not about that at all. He was a famous composer, and they wanted his uh, appearance of being involved. Um, actually, he was kicked out because Stefan Zweig, his librettist, who wrote the libretto for the, the Schweigsame Frau and for, um, no, I can't think of another one, but there's another one. Uh, Strauss kept writing letters saying, you must allow Mr. 
Zweig to write, and finally Mr. Zweig moved to Brazil and um, you know, realized that, that he was not going to survive. And in fact, Zweig decided to kill himself in 1942. He wrote Strauss a letter and he said, I hope you live to see the light, but I got impatient and I want to see it now. So uh, Strauss really, he crumbled under, under the Third Reich. It, it was horrible for everybody and he was no exception. Sorry, we don't want to end on that note, please. <laughs> Can somebody ask about something other than the Third Reich? His wife. <laughs> Did she die first? No. No, she, she survived another eight years. And um, she, she, she was an independent person from the word go and remained that, you know. They, they were extraordinarily close, and she uh, constantly told him how to improve things, and he fought with her and usually would come back and say, you were right about that. <laughs> so they, they had a wonderful artistic uh, relationship long after she was singing. Franz had two sons, um, Richard and Christian, and the sons, the grandsons of Richard Strauss are still alive. Um, not musical, but uh, they have, when, whenever there's a biography of Strauss, of course the sons are very uh, helpful and, and remember lots of things. Strauss was the quintessential family man. Um, even when he was writing things about ancient Greece, uh, like uh, the, the um, Egyptian Helen, the whole story centers around uh, family and how family is the redeeming thing in everybody's life. Was there? You forgot to tell a little giggle. I did. That was the horn solo that Strauss asked his father about. The, uh, <laughs> that his father said, oh yeah, you can play that, just not in front of other people. <laughs> <laughs> but Till Eulenspiegel was one of his early tone poems, and it's a 14th century legend of a boy who gets into a lot of mischief and at the end is hanged in the public square. But even as he's in the noose, he thumbs his nose at the crowd one last time. You know, an, an indomitable spirit. Okay, thank you. That was really nice. <laughs>